Hey ho, tutor-minded people, I'm Gage. I'm Jessica, we're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 13 of our podcast. And it's such a pleasure that you're joining us. Keep all your comments coming, we love hearing from you. So if you're new here, start at episode 1. This is a story project, and it's best to listen in order. Yeah, you don't want to miss any of the twists and turns of the plot. Jesse will read the next section of Time's Riddle, and after the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making the connections between then and now. We have had such an amazing time researching and working on this project, and especially bringing it to you. At this point in our story, Philomena and Constance have discovered that the author of the mysterious letter is the great poet, Sir Thomas Wyatt. But in this section, searching out the relic will have to wait. There's a wedding at court. Read on, Jessie. Chapter 13. The Palace of Whitehall. The Wedding. In which there is a joust and a case of mistaken identity. The wedding between Ambrose Dudley, Earl of Warwick, and Lady Anne Russell, Constance heard in the court gossip, had started small. An early morning union performed in Her Majesty's closet, witnessed by only those who rated highly enough to be shut up with the Queen. By afternoon, descriptions of the bride's dress as hideous and cheap, or gorgeous and desirable, mixed with contradictions about unseen decorations, unheard vows, and unknown generosity, ballooned into the main subject of conversation for the entire city. The groom was a widower twice over, and the bride's father, the Earl of Bedford, though not himself in attendance, had spent every pence he had, hoping to outshine previous fathers-in-law, who had desired to make similar lasting impressions. For two solid days the wedding festivities had continued, as the final day dawned, the court staggered forth to the final step of the extravagant wedding tour, a tournament at Whitehall. They would be late to start the joust, thought Constance, as she stood in the icy mud of the tilt-yard. Reaching the field had been a flurry. All the ladies in their costumes herded into carts to present to the men as they prepared for mock combat. Constance was waddling next to Mary Howard, trying to find footing in her perilously long robe, part of her Amazon costume. Dejectedly, Mary held a Greek-style brass helmet with boot-length horsehair coming from atop and trailing down, far down behind. Oh, fie on it! Mary's mournful eyes sought Constance. I refuse. I would not put this abomination on my head. I will be blinded. Constance examined the headdress. For once, Mary was not just a bleating sheep. There were tiny holes for the eyes. The mouth was almost completely covered, with only a thin slit to breathe through. Undoubtedly, so Anne Russell did not have to hear anyone else speak. Did the bride wish the death of her fellows? She must, if she wanted them to ride out in front of each competitor for the joust, bearing his arms in such unimaginable dress. Everything about the costumes was impractical, but sure to make an impression. And that was what mattered. Constance was certain that Anne, as the new Countess of Warwick, would have demanded her troop of Amazons cut off a breast and leave the other to flap in the wind, if only the Queen would have allowed it. At her own wedding, Constance would prefer hammer-throwing over yet another joust. The hammers were so scary sailing through the air, it was exciting to wonder where they would fall. Charles Paget would be gratified on her wedding night. She was an actual virgin. No quick stitching required. Would you marry for love? Constance asked Mary. I would like to marry someone who loved me, Mary answered truthfully. Yet I do not want to be a slave to my husband. Women in love are such dogs. How old Sir Ambrose looked. He may die at any moment. Anne Russell has made a good match. Mary picked up a heavy sword. This is a travesty. Even I know Amazons were archers. Constance slid on her helmet. 
The eye slits were too small and cut her vision strangely. It was as if she were looking through two tiny chinks in a brass wall. She tried to tie the leather straps under her chin to hold the monstrosity in place, but her gloved hands were too awkward. She removed the gloves, tied the headgear, and then, balancing the enormous weight on her head, leaned down to retrieve her gloves, almost falling in the process. She wobbled off to be assigned a horse and rider, and observed Blackjack at the task. He walked past, nodding. The sole benefit of being encased in metal, feeling like a blind, sweating bat, was evading notice. Blackjack placed a shield next to each maid. The ladies twisted stiffly in their get-ups, struggling to see which coat of arms was depicted, and then, hooking it to a breastplate and bunching up their skirts, stumbling away to search out the knight who sported the same crest. The shield next to Constance bore a chilling insignia. The Earl of Oxford, how disastrous! She would not be his Amazon. On impulse, she switched her shield with the one next to it. Thomas and St. John careened up to it, and finding the coat of arms pleasing, loped off to enjoy the grueling charm of the 17th Earl. They might be companionable, Constance hoped. She found her own escort, and recognized him as another of Lord Cecil's wards, the boy with the tennis racket. She shifted her eyes within the helmet. Despite his neatly clipped hair and close-cut dark beard, he did not look over-groomed and foppish like Oxford. His stance was strong, but not pompous. His expression welcomed her. He must have a friendly nature. As she went to mount up on her horse, he held the reins for her, leaning in closely. Mistress St. John? She must have misheard, thought Constance, and tried unsuccessfully to move her head. Oh, my dearest, are you not happy to see me? It was difficult to speak in her absurd headgear. The young man was embarrassing himself. He must think her the other lady. She lifted her hand to gesture. No, but he caught it. I can feel the shape of your fingers beneath these gloves, mistress. They are so elegant. What beauty you have. Surely you will pause to give me a token. Constance gently pulled her hand back and placed her fingers over where her mouth was under her headgear. We do not have to be silent, mistress. I have devised this moment so I may speak. I am Constance Stoner. Speaking was difficult. She could hardly move her lips, crushed as they were against the brass. Through the metal, the lad interpreted, Love law? Or do you mean love or? No, I, I trifle with you. Do not be offended, sweet lady. The joust horn sounded. Constance fumbled with the leather straps of her helmet so she could take it off and be heard. He banged the helmet back down with his flat hand. Her ears clanged with the force. Later, dear heart, he begged. The joust is about to begin. I must don my armor. She twisted from the waist like a wind-whipped tree, whacking him in the eye as she tried to free herself. What is it you must say? the lad implored. The straps finally loosened. The headgear fell to the ground. Her flushed face and wild hair were exposed. A silence of shocked self-consciousness reigned over the young man. He mumbled a word of apology. The horn sounded again. Constance quickly reassembled her costume and mounted up. And without another word, her escort handed her the reins and led her towards the joust. The vanities were in flourish as Sir Robert Dudley hosted the wedding tournament feast at his home on the Strand. Constance looked on as Dudley and the Queen commanded the dance floor of Durham House with athletic grace. Some eyes followed Dudley with jealousy. Those on the Queen were veiled. Her Majesty grabbed the hand of Lady Elizabeth Clinton, and they twirled together, whispering their high spirits and broad smiles as they jumped and clapped. Princess Cecilia and her resplendent husband, the Margrave of Baden-Baden, were about to join. 
when the queen paused from the dancing to recover her breath and bid the entertainers take the floor. A thick crowd formed. Constance found herself in front, with Mary and Nazareth edging behind her. Mary asked, Oh, why the commotion? I cannot see. From her vantage, Constance relayed, It is a pig, a fancy one in green and white costume. Oh, now the pigman is holding up some paper with letters. The pig is pushing them with its snout to make a word. Oh, it's extraordinary. The pig was quite a performer and was wiggling its rump. The crowd hooted. Oh, I love animal antics, Mary burbled. Remember the hare that played the table? Oh, Constance, what is the pig writing out? I am dinner, quipped Nazareth. You have seen many such talented pigs, have you, Nazareth? Mary asked. You prefer those mangy jugglers. The pig was led off. The queen called for more music, and all took their places for the dance. Constance was surprised to see her escort at the tilts switching places with another fellow in order to be her partner. He was brave to face her again. He bowed. I behaved in a way that does not befit a knight, and I must ask for your pardon. Sir John Norris promised to arrange for Mistress St. John to be paired with me. You were sorely disappointed, she said. Indeed I was, but I cannot fault you for that. Constance knew that he could, since she was the one who switched the shields, sending Thomason off to Oxford. Surely you were able to dance with the lady? She departed, tired by the joust. I have not seen her at all. His tough little smile made Constance cringe inside. Sir, I lodge at Bedford House, in the service of the Swedish princess. Would you like me to take something, a message or a token, for Mistress St. John? You are as kind as you are beautiful. Oh, please, you need not flatter. I forgive the confusion. Her fingers touched his. She stepped as he led her to the music. Lady, is it flattery if it is true? Sir, are you a philosopher or a linguist? Well said. To tell you true, we have met before, but I do not know where. Constance considered he spoke to her in a familiar tone, as if they were already friends. Such was the luxury of a high peer. It was at Lord William Cecil's house I was being hunted. I remember. Oxford offends a thousand times a day. Now again. You must tell me your name, lady. Mistress Constance Stoner, she spoke, looking for the reaction to her surname, but he was either unmoved or gallant enough to check himself. And I am Edward Manners, Earl of Rutland. Do you know Mistress St. John well? She could not tell him the lady was considered secretive, taciturn, suspicious. I, I wish I did, so I might entertain you with a story about her. Yet I do not. I only admire her beauty from afar, as so many do. He beamed. As the dance ended, Rutland twisted off the ring from his little finger and held it out. Would you do me the kindness of giving this to her? Constance saw it bore his family crest. He pleaded silently with his moist little boy eyes. She could not deny him. She took the ring and swore she would give it to his lady. Thomason would be touched by this gesture. They must be deeply in love. An image of herself as Cupid, a quiver of arrows slung across her shoulders, popped into Constance's head. The Margrave of Baden-Baden was taking his leave of Lady Clinton after some spirited dancing. Seeing that her mentor was momentarily alone, Constance took the opportunity to greet her. Lady Clinton pulled Constance close. Do you take note, Constance? Constance watched across the room as the Marquis of Northampton pressed his lips to the ear of young Elan. Constance was not surprised by their intimacy. Elan was always climbing out of the window in the middle of the night, or feigning a twisted ankle to stay behind. 
She had done it so many times that Doradai left a cobbler's foot in Elin's bed with a note saying that the wooden foot would undeniably work better than Elin's own. The die has been cast, Elizabeth Clinton growled. The queen smiles on Mistress Elin, and she may hell on earth become the next Lady Marquess of Northampton. Constance, you must take advantage. Screw your courage up and befriend her. The nephew of the Marquis, young Herbert, son of the Earl of Pembroke, would be an excellent match. And he has taken notice of your daintiness. Some men like a rump roast and some prefer a quail. Herbert is a quail man. He will come with the Marquis to Bedford House and you, as Elan's friend, will gain influence and marry him. You will ascend. This diatribe left Constance glassy-eyed. Madam, Elin is at Princess Cecilia's less and less, and we have only spoken cordially. Then you must befriend her soon. My girl, do you wish to return to Stoner House? No, Constance answered truthfully. Madam, I am grateful that you brought me here. Then you must distinguish yourself with the Queen. Befriend those she favours, or she will forget you. You cannot simply chase your tail as a maid of honour. Constance prickled. Madam, I desire to raise myself. Constance, have you seen young Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke's second son? The heir, Henry, will have his father's title. He is out of your reach. But Herbert is a boy with some charm and ambition, and he is of the new faith. That is an advantage. Constance imagined Aunt Stoner's reaction to Lady Clinton's words, slapping and ranting. It would not be pleasant. How could she possibly evade this Herbert? She could never let on to Lady Clinton that she was already promised to Sir Charles Paget. Do you attend me, Constance? I only say what will help you. Pardon me, madam, Constance curtsied. Young Herbert. This pleasantry annoyed Lady Clinton, whose voice dropped to a dark tone. Mistress, if you wish to raise with the Queen, hook yourself to those who can help you, and not to your stubborn family. They will only come between you and advancement. Constance? You are a person I admire, but do not let your goodness lead you astray. If you desire to make something of yourself, find a bridge to Elan Snakenborg. I despise her. Perhaps you do as well, but she plays a weak hand strongly. Many oppose her match with the Marquis. The Swedish princess sponsors her one day and reneges the next. And yet this Elan soars by charming the queen and ensnaring the Marquis. It is arresting. Constance would not voice to Lady Clinton that she wanted to rise too, but her situation was a tumble. Confiding her attachment to Charles Paget might mean losing Lady Clinton's sympathy, or the lady could become an enemy, actively working against her. And yet Constance had heard that many years ago Lady Clinton herself had been out of favour with the Queen, but had found her way to regain it. Could she persuade Lady Clinton to understand her own loyalties? Madam, what if I were to marry someone who was... Constance faltered, unsure how to speak clearly, yet discreetly, who had my way of thinking of unfleshy matters. Is that what you consider? Is that the cause of your silence? Do not waste a second on it. I forbid it. No. You bring your what if this or that to me? You want to make an advancement, Constance? And what do you bring? Money? Connections? Some unexpected information? Lady Clinton's expression was so mild, and yet her words so pointed. Constance closed her eyes against the tears, willing them to stick to her eyeballs. She looked at Lady Clinton's inexpressive face through a mist. Simpering girl, collect yourself, the older woman said and waved her off. Constance rushed outside. The cold air filled her lungs, calming her. That Lady Clinton was so cruel, so very harsh to hold up Elan as a person to emulate. The stoners were strong people. 
noble. They stuck to their beliefs. Aunt Stoner's voice sounded in her head. Lashings on this earth must be born with an eye to heaven. Constance began clomping inelegantly around the garden in an attempt to rid herself of indulgent self-pity and wishing she had had the presence of mind to grab her wrap on the way out. Uncharacteristically, Wynne appeared at the moment she was needed with the very thing that Constance most desired, a thick fur cape. Wynne moaned that she had searched for Constance for the last half hour before coming to the garden, and the little thing was wringing her hands, hastening Constance to a waiting gentleman. Constance was astounded at Wynne's perseverance and slipped her a coin when the Spaniard with the curls came into view. He was as handsome as before, yet now that he was not on horseback, Constance saw he barely exceeded her own height. She looked him straight in the eye. She liked that. He had come on Signor Guzman's orders. He gestured and said something quietly in Spanish. When he saw she did not understand, he switched to Latin. Even that was indecipherably accented. Then he broke through. His miming of a sad person and the subsequent happiness at receiving the host was beguiling. She pointed to her head to indicate she understood Guzman had sent him to help her in this duty. Looking at the glow of the banquet, she knew the distraction of the festivities made this the perfect night for the mission. Constance is off on this mission with the Spaniard while everyone at court is distracted by this massive wedding celebration. Everybody loves a wedding, especially a royal wedding. True, so true. And we know so much about this one. Our favorite, Holland Sheds Chronicles. Oh, yes, good old Holland Sheds Chronicles. <laughs> has an excellent contemporary description of the wedding and the festivities. Although technically it was not a royal wedding, but a court wedding. More like Pippa's wedding than Kate's. And the wedding ceremony was not like either, actually. The ceremony itself wasn't an extravagant affair until fairly recently. The jousts and the feasts were big parties, but the ceremony between Ambrose Dudley and Anne Russell itself was a private event. Only a few people, and it was in the Queen's closet. Which would have not been a closet. No. <laughs> but a nice private room that was just termed a closet. The ceremony was a religious sacrament in the Catholic Church and a religious observance in the Protestant Church, and there would probably only have been a few witnesses. It was nothing like the Jane Seymour oh, and boy. Henry VIII wedding Here we depicted go. in the TV show. No, don't Tudors. go there. I can't resist. Okay, number one, that wedding took place in a small chamber, not in the Tudor equivalent of a rented wedding venue in Las Vegas. <laughs> Number two, it was private. Only the priest and a few witnesses. Not all the court and a guy with an eye patch. And number three, the dress. Oh, the dress. In the TV show, Jane Seymour is in a white Disney princess gown and an Elsa <laughs> hairdo complete with a white veil. All wrong. They did not wear white for weddings. That's a 19th century convention started by Queen Victoria. And the tight inset sleeve coming down to Jane's wrist? No, absolutely not. The sleeve would be open, revealing beautiful undersleeves. And actually, the whole thing is just too coordinated. The Tudors loved the look of layering, of different fabrics peeking out. Sure, and that was also a sign of luxury, to have all these different fabrics and textures. I mean, Jonathan Rhys-Meyers and Annabelle Wallace they look like they're in Cinderella and Prince Charming Halloween outfits. 
But we will post some pictures from the TV show on the Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, and you listeners can weigh in on this outrage. Anne Russell, in her real Tudor wedding dress, wore something amazing. It was silver cloth shot through with blue, an overdress of purple velvet embroidered in silver, no white veil. No, no, no. no, no. But a, and I quote, dainty call made of fretted gold. Mm. The bridegroom wore gold and purple trimmed with sable. Well, maybe he had that wedding suit left over from his last marriages. I mean, Anne Russell was his third wife. Maybe the third time's the charm. Now, I wonder if he had to either make it bigger or smaller, depending on whether he'd gained or lost weight. But the queen hosting would have been a mark of favor. Although probably more to do with the Queen's regard for Robert Dudley than for his brother Ambrose Dudley or for the bride Anne Russell. And the blowout festivities that followed were also all about Robert and maybe about Elizabeth herself because Elizabeth loved a party and she didn't have to pay for it because Anne Russell's father was responsible for that. Elizabeth loved a party she didn't have to pay for and she didn't have to lay out for the crazy Amazon garb. That detail was in the contemporary account of the wedding, and we loved that. Yeah. Yeah, the meeting of a Christian religious celebration with the pagan dress-up party. But honestly, this mix was the norm for the nobility. The 16th century elite were obsessed with the classical world. Dressing up as gods and goddesses was the rage all over Europe. And I think they never considered an obsession with the classical a threat to Christianity. They kind of married the two worlds together. A perfect example is having Amazons at a Christian wedding. But as Mary Howard points out to Constance at the wedding, these Amazon costumes were nothing like the image of the women warriors on a Greek vase. The account of the wedding says that these Amazon costumes were long robes and they had helmets with boot-length hair attached. It must have been so hard to ride a horse in that getup. But anything for Anne Russell and Ambrose Dudley... Particularly for the Dudleys. They were a really important family throughout the entire Tudor dynasty. Powerful, but also condemned traitors, executed. Yes, they're kind of the inverse of Constance's family of the Stoners. The Stoners are Catholic and the Dudleys are Protestants. So when Constance's family was down, the Dudleys were up. And when the Stoners were up, the Dudleys would be down. But Edmund Dudley, Robert's grandfather, started all off by being an advisor to Henry VII, very trusted, loved, but guess what? He was then executed by Henry's son, Henry VIII. But then his son, John Dudley, by all accounts a wonderful wrestler, archer, jouster, and soldier, became knight of the body, a personal attendant to Henry VIII. To be the close personal attendant to the man who had your father executed? These guys were really pragmatic. John Dudley was not going to risk his career at court to stab Henry VIII in the heart and revenge his father. When you think about how many men at the Tudor court had fathers or brothers or uncles executed by a monarch, it seems like some sort of revenge was just not expected. In other cultures, perhaps that would have been considered cowardly or they should revenge for honor. But in England, that just does not seem to be the case. I guess the cold-blooded English played the long game to get back at their enemies. And John Dudley 
Even though his father was executed, he certainly rose to power in the Tudor court. But he fell hard when he was implicated in the plot to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne. We discussed that in episode 11, and Mary imprisoned Dudley and all of the sons, Ambrose, Guildford, Henry, and Robert. All five Dudleys were tried for treason and sentenced to death. And John Dudley and Guildford were executed, but Ambrose, Robert, and Henry survived, mainly because they were kind of on the outskirts of this rebellion, and also due to their mother pleading with Mary's husband, Philip of Spain. So to try to get back into Mary's good graces, they went to the continent to fight for Philip against the French. Henry died in battle, but Ambrose and Robert survived, and they did good service, and they did regain some trust with Mary. And then, when Elizabeth took the throne in 1558... Ambrose was named Master of the Ordnance, which is a military title, and the super hot Robert Dudley <laughs> was named Master of the Horse. So they kind of, they made they it. They came back up. Master of the Horse, when I first heard that term, it sounded to me a little bit like a glorified groom, but it was actually an incredibly vital position. So as Master of the Horse, Robert Dudley took responsibility for all state transport. And He was part of the day-to-day running of Elizabeth's court. He was also a member of her privy council. So Robert is riding high. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) And Elizabeth is hosting his brother's wedding. But she is not paying for it. She didn't feel responsible to pay. She left that to Anne Russell's father, the Earl of Bedford. I'm sure she was like, look, I elevated your daughter. What more do you want? Your girl is getting a great match. Not a love match, maybe. But not just a pairing for a position. I think there are some confusing ideas about what the Elizabethans thought a good match was. A happy union should be advantageous financially, of course, and also in terms of land. But they also expected love would come from a good business arrangement. In fact, pseudo-scientifically, they believed if you loved your spouse, you'd have more children, and that was a good thing, a blessing. They didn't think you should have a cold marriage. And also, another misconception is that the Tudors got married very young. In fact, from what we've read, the average age for getting married in this period in England was in your 20s. So a pair might be matched up by families in the early teens for financial or political reasons, but the actual marriage and the actual consummation of the marriage would wait. In 16th century England, it was thought that having an overactive sex life too young was just not healthy. But that didn't mean that you had to stay away from the other sex. Henry VIII brought back the idea of the medieval courtly love and chivalry, and it continued throughout the 16th century. But there's a huge difference between the business of an advantageous marriage and the flirty, freer diversion of chivalry and admiration which I'm sure didn't always mean having sex with somebody. In fact, I think it was expected to be chaste. Chaste, yeah. And in this section, we see examples of both. So there's this big kind of corporate wedding going on, which is an advantageous marriage, obviously. But at the joust, Constance finds herself faced with a young knight who thinks that she is Thomason St. John, the lady he has admired from afar. Yes, and he asks for a token which would have been a handkerchief, maybe a ring or a hair ornament, that he can tuck into his armor when he goes out to the joust. And this is a very courtly love notion. The people that you were 
in courtly love with were not necessarily people you would marry. It was separate. It was for fun. Yeah, and in our story, Edward Manners, Earl of Rutland, wants to have courtly love fun with Thomas and St. John. And now poor Constance has put herself in the middle of it. Edward Manners, Earl of Rutland, was a real person. He was born in 1549, and his family had been at court for generations. In fact, his great-grandmother was Anne of York, sister of Edward IV and Richard III, so the family had a claim to the English throne. His father, Henry Manners, served in the courts of Mary and Elizabeth, but died when Edward was only 14. Young Edward became the Earl of Rutland, sort of. At his father's death, he became a ward of the Queen and William Cecil took over his education. As a young man with Plantagenet roots, Henry VIII would probably have had Edward Manners executed, but Elizabeth made him her ward. Keep your enemies close, as they say. I think Henry VIII would have gotten young Edward's money as a ward and then beheaded him. Yes, that is probably (laughs) the way he would have done it. But young Edward was sent by Elizabeth to live at the home of Sir William Cecil and Mildred Cecil. When I first read that the Cecils had a number of young wards that they brought up and educated, my reaction was, oh, that was so sweet. Like, they're taking in orphans. It's so charitable and nice. I thought the exact same thing. But when you really examine it, this wardship scheme was a big moneymaker for whoever held the wardship. So young men and women alike could be made wards. In many cases, the mother of the child was still living. But the child would almost be forced into this wardship on the death of their father. So the age for a young man to come to maturity or legally able to own lands and reap the income, which was very important, was 21. And for a young woman, it was 14. When one of these children was made a ward, the income from their inheritance would go to whoever was holding their wardship in exchange for housing them and providing them an education until they were of legal age. In England at this time, most of these wards had many lands and so essentially when they would bring in the crops all the money that was made would go to the person who held the wardship forever yes it wasn't put into a nice little account a savings account for the for the individual to have when they became of age the whoever was holding the wardship was entitled to that income until the person until the ward was old enough to be entitled to it themselves so it was an incredible money maker and it, and as you can imagine that's why many people Cecil included would evaluate who was the richest ward and then they would if they had a daughter try to marry someone to that ward to expand their own lands and their own income and i think it may be the reason why in some cases even though the mother was alive The child was almost forced into wardship because somebody wanted to make money out of that child. The queen took the wards and then either granted or sold their wardships to her favorites. So the Cecils held the wardships of eight noblemen over the years of this kind of foster parenting that they did. And among them was the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, the Earl of Rutland, the Earl of Southampton, And Oxford and Southampton have both been the subject of a lot of conjecture in relationship to Shakespeare, might I say, incorrectly. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I I don't think anyone has ever said that the Earl of Southampton was Shakespeare. Have they? 
(laughs) (laughs) Who knows? But often William Cecil is cited as an inspiration for the long-winded Polonius in Hamlet. But again, we don't know. It's just so fascinating. I guess, you know, it's actually quite a small place. It's so fascinating how everyone in the Tudor period is connected. Yes, but when you think about how these families stuck around for all these generations and how few gentry there actually were, it's not that surprising that they were so connected. You know, to be fair to William Cecil, yes, the wardship was lucrative, but he did have his wards incredibly well educated. He really did believe in that. He also thought he was grooming them to be politicians for the state. So he wanted to have these connections with these very high up nobles who would have incredible political influence. And they took this education very seriously. They did it with integrity. Mm-hmm. And so did Mildred. She was very involved with the wards and cared about promoting them at court. I read that Mildred was responsible for the day-to-day activities of their education because obviously Cecil was at court and he was very busy. So Mildred was extremely involved with these wards. And we do know these wards were promoted at court. For example, the Earl of Rutland was actually at this wedding of Dudley and Anne. In the Hall and Stead's Chronicles, it says the Earl of Rutland and Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, actually stood in for Anne Russell's father, and they gave Anne Russell away in the wedding ceremony. And in their first encounter, Constance is grateful that Rutland does not blanch at her being a stoner, because, you know, they're a suspect Catholic family, while his family is firmly Protestant and in the Queen's good graces. Constance is not technically Lady Clinton's ward, But Lady Clinton is kind of serving as her advocate at court, and she has some very strong words for Constance about ambition, rising above a family who Lady Clinton sees as bringing her down, and about the possibility of an advantageous arrangement with young Herbert. Young Herbert. (laughs) Lady Clinton is pretty furious with Mm, Constance for not jumping at this lad's interest Mm -hmm. in her. As the youngest son of William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, he is not, as Lady Clinton says, the heir. But the family would be an incredible step up for Constance. He's a son of William Herbert and Anne Parr, sister of Catherine Parr, and our Marquis of Northampton. They're a solidly Protestant family in good graces with the Queen. This is the kind of alliance that would help Constance rid the stigma of the Catholic stoners. And Lady Clinton is furious that Constance doesn't see that. One of the reasons we chose Elizabeth Clinton to be the mouthpiece for court ambition is because she herself was able to overcome a very suspect family who were ardent Roman Catholics. And of course, you know, were beheaded and went to the tower. And even though her family really was dead, Uh, She rose to be one of the Queen's most trusted ladies-in-waiting. Was she Elizabeth's favorite lady? (laughs) (laughs) We don't know. It's true. Jesse and I always joke that whenever we read a book about one of the ladies, the author's primary goal is to lay out why that particular lady was Elizabeth's favorite. Or how that particular lady was the most beautiful at court. Yes. As if we really (laughs) care about that. And personally, I don't think Elizabeth would have had only one favorite. It's 
so definitive and she would have kept everything up in the air. That was way more her style than confiding in just one person and making them her favorite. And Elizabeth was queen for such a long time. I'm sure one was her favorite sometimes. I mean, Elizabeth Clinton herself, they're very close and then they have a huge falling out. And years go by and then she rises again. And unlike her dad, she didn't kill those who were out of favor with her. So they had a chance to come back. That was also her style. Yeah, it it amazes me when people say women are too emotional to be in power. I mean, look at the difference of temper between Henry and Elizabeth and how they they stuck by the people who, who had been close to them. I mean, Elizabeth had long, long relationships with people. And Henry had long relationships, cut their heads off, and then felt sad about it. <laughs> no, he, ter- he was a terrifying person. Lady Clinton finds constant stubbornness infuriating because she is a person who's had to make a lot of compromises. And I think anyone who wanted to survive at court had to compromise. And despite her traitorous relatives and whatever her private religious convictions were, she survived Henry, Edward, and Mary before she served Elizabeth. She was able to make two advantageous marriages, and she really did very, very well for herself. And she was able to do that without having a father, an uncle, or any male relatives to advocate for her because they were all dead. (laughs) So Elizabeth Clinton served Queen Elizabeth, and their friendship spanned 57 years. Elizabeth Clinton has lectured Constance and held out the interest of young Herbert. Ooh. Constance <laughs> just ignores her good advice, no. as all young people must. Oh, she's so frustrating. <laughs> she does not hesitate when the Spaniard sets her on a mysterious mission to do the will of the Bishop Guzman de Silva. No, she doesn't hesitate to do the Bishop Guzman de Silva's will, but she hesitates to take the good advice from Lady Clinton. We'll it's, see how that works out. Next time we'll discover whom this noble prisoner is that Constance is taking so many risks for. So we'd love to hear from all you Tudor heads out there on the Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. Let us know who you consider Elizabeth's favorite lady-in-waiting and why. See you next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.